You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back. Hopefully everybody's doing well. I've been getting a lot of feedback on the podcast. People have been reaching out, and uh, I really appreciate everybody's interest in the podcast. It has grown tremendously. Um, I'm proud to say that this is the top Habitat podcast in the country right now. With the content and the contributors we have on, on this podcast, you know, I've been very appreciative but I don't want to belittle this other piece of it. We're going to talk hunting tactics today. That's been a huge piece of it. And Steve Shirk has been a great contributor to the podcast. And I appreciate everything he does for us. You know, he kind of ran the show when we we're doing the in-season stuff. And, you know, it's just great content and information. We had some just awesome guests on there giving, you know, their strategies. You know, Andy May, you know, Johnny Stewart, those type of guys. And, and it just was really helpful. And I appreciate all Steve does for this podcast. Let me get him on the line. Hey, Steve, are you there? Yes, sir. I'm right here. All right, man. Uh, let's uh, let's talk postseason uh, scouting, but I want to talk a little bit about your season first. I know you, know you ended up killing a deer this year. You've had some successful clients. I know that you're looking at the data now, postseason analysis. Tell me what's going on in your world. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, postseason you know related type stuff uh i did some shed hunting yesterday and that kind of kick-started my interest to you know not only try to see what deer are still roaming out there but it's always like uh you know that second place prize if you didn't kill him you know you can at least get his antlers so shed hunting and gathering intel for what's going to be available next season and then you know also trying to look back uh you know, yeah, I would say I had a successful season, but, I mean, there's still much to learn from. I still feel that I need to improve in certain areas. So it's just a great time of year to uh, to try to mold yourself into a, a better deer hunter versus, you know, some guys are just pretty much done and 
uh, deer hunting is not even on their mind. But uh, at least for me, and I know guys like you, uh, it really never leaves our mind. So it's actually a time of year that, that I really enjoy. So I've got right next to me um, about 35 cameras, which if I'm guessing <laughs> on average have around, I don't know, five to 8,000 pictures on them at this point. So, you know, I'm in the, you know, half a million pictures to go through here and analyzing those. Uh, you do something similar, right? I mean, you go through a numerous amount of cameras and you start to come up with data and you analyze that. We've talked about that before in this podcast. And, and yep. you were on that Exodus podcast as well. And that was quite interesting. If anybody has not seen that, please go back and, and, and find that. That's on YouTube as well. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what your your analysis has proven this year and key dates, data, how you're looking at the data, because people get cameras and they don't, they don't know really what to do at this point. You know, what do I do with the data? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, every season's a little bit different too, but there's certain factors that will affect deer movement every year. And I've said it before and I'm noticing it again, you know, once as I'm going through this data here, uh, I still believe temperature is the ultimate factor that, that, you know, affects deer movement the most. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other different things too, but, um, you know, one thing uh, that, that I see and, you know, where I struggle is if we have a lot of warm weather, you know, especially during the rut, that's just seems like our deer, these, you know, big woods, mountain deer, they do not move nearly as much. And my data definitely proves that, um, I can also say, looking back on this past season, um, <clears throat> overall movement was actually down. Um, there, I mean, there were some spikes in that, but it just seemed like uh, our deer just never, they were never super active. And it, this might not be relevant to a lot of other areas, but what I think, um, I don't think our deer are in the greatest shape right now. We've went two years with, uh, without any mass crop. Uh, we had, you know, major drought conditions last summer and fall. Um, I think some areas there's too many deer, so there's, you know, little food. So I think when you put all that together, uh, you know, if, if even if, if you thought of it from like a human standpoint, if, I mean, if you're basically starving and hungry and weak, I don't think you're going to be as active. And I think that really contributed to the, to the, you know, lesser movement I saw this past season. So, Hopefully the winter will stay mild and next season maybe we'll get a good mass crop and uh, see, a, you know, especially a better rut overall. It really was a, a, a more, uh, you know, I don't want to say it was a trickle rut. It just seemed like it never really got, you know, heavily active. We've talked about this before, you and I, and, uh, you know, the status and health of the deer and the related movement, which isn't something that's been studied, but just your observation, totally anecdotal at this point. But it's, it's relevant to the fact that, you know, there's there's bits of data. And, and I want to just throw this out here. And, and there's been studies on this. So there's been real GPS studies on this. I'm not making this up, okay? Mm-hmm. In forward, forested settings, uh, again, depending on the vegetation, how things are optimized, all that type of stuff, deer movement is, has a tendency to be more contracted. So yep. we have these, like, uh, people watch, you know, YouTube and, and these, you know, YouTube celebrities. Sturge is a good example. Now, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but they're talking about these, you know, fall and summer patterns and deer moving around. You know, when it comes to deer kind of displacing and immigrating to areas, you're not noticing as large a trends. I mean, I've seen deer 
travel miles and miles and miles. I've individually tracked deer for miles going to different locations, but sometimes in these large agricultural settings, you'll see these major massive movements. And I think in forested settings, those become quite quite a bit contracted, either around food sources. And like to your point, the status and health of the deer is another factor that, you know, they're not waiting in the, the equations, the GPS uh, equations, but I know that's a factor of it. And obviously deer have individual personalities. Some are more mobile than others, et cetera. But I think those are good points to consider, Steve, when you're making your decisions on where you hunt. I don't yep. know your thoughts on that. Yeah, and, you know, another thing that I saw this year was a lot of our mature bucks, um, you know, you could tell that body size wasn't as good, antler growth wasn't as good, and there was a huge delay in the, in the bulk of their daytime movement. I mean, usually by the end of October, you know, I'm seeing quite a bit of mature buck activity, whether it's from my clients or, you know, cameras, my own observations, and I really did not see uh, you know, good mature buck activity till closer to like that mid November period, which is, you know, a week or two late. But I also think that it all goes back to the health of, of the deer. And, you know, they do the bulk of the breeding is it probably took longer for them to get their bodies ready. Um, you know, to really get to the point where they want to move heavily. I'm not going to say that they weren't rutting or, but I don't think they were roaming as much. I think they were, it was almost like, uh, like similar to like a lockdown, like I think they were betting, you know, downwind of doe groups, just kind of monitoring them, but they weren't bouncing around from one area to another. You didn't get that heavily, you know, that heavy cruising action pack type scenario for a long period of time. So, uh, you know, just that's the thing in the big woods. It's just every year seems to be a little bit different. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, our archery season, ends around that mid-October period or mid-November period. So as far as mature buck movement being really good for, you know, a good period of time, we just didn't have that this year. Yeah, that's interesting. So going back through the data and obviously, you know, we've, we've talked and we both agree temperature is one of the critical factors that you can rely on as, as a means to determining, you know, the movement days. Anything stand out in your mind, days, times, just information that you think is relevant? Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, and, you know, it, it does go back to temperature uh, so far, and I'm only, right, I guess right now I'm probably about 80% through. I think I got about maybe just under 60 cards to pull and go through. But uh, this year we ran, usually we run around 150 cameras. I'd say this year on average is 160, 170. So I'm getting through this a lot faster than usual. Um but, uh, you know, where I saw the best stretch of activity was roughly from probably, you know, around November 12th to, you know, maybe the 20th. That I guess, look, I got my paperwork right here, probably like the 21st. 21st was a really good day as well, maybe even into the 23rd. But it, what I can say is um, that was the best stretch of cold weather that we had, too, by far the entire fall. Um, I even have all the temperature data here, too. Um, on November 12th here in Pennsylvania, uh, we had a major cold front. Now, the high was 60 and the low was 35, but it was 60 at midnight on the 12th. So as soon as the 12th arrived, it was 60 degrees, and those temperatures just dropped like crazy. And in the days, 
or in the day, you know, later in the day, it got into even the high 30s and kept dropping. So it was that, that major front that kind of kicked things off. And then November 13th, um, like, uh, it is the best day so far for data, um, as far as, you know, the, what I'm seeing on my cameras. And also, even with our clients, I think we killed two bucks that day. I also killed one November 12th as well. Um, but we have a uh, high temperature of 36 and a low of 30. And I call those 30, 30 days. Like whenever you get, you know, highs and lows in the thirties, they tend to be great days for deer movement, but those temperatures remain pretty consistent, um, right until the 22nd, 23rd. And then after that, um, things warmed up a tad and we saw a decrease in activity. Now I am not saying that temperature, affects like those coming into estrus or triggers rutting hormones, but it plays a huge part in deer movement. Um, and a lot of times on warmer days and here in, you know, in the conditions and the environment that, that we're hunting, um, warmer days, you're going to see way more night activity than daytime activity. So I, once again, I think the weather played a huge part into uh, our success and the amount of activity uh, we saw this year, and also, uh, like I said, the health of our deer. Um, I think there was some factors going towards that as well. Yeah, I'm starting to weigh various factors and decisions. And, you know, people have probably heard my story, of different stories of bucks that I've killed. And being very precise, you know, there's a difference when you have a property that's managed, you know, precisely. Their, their movements are much more predictable because the layout yep. defines kind of how they flow on the landscape, but then figuring out how they use these areas, it's similar in any sense. I mean, any property is going to be similar. When are they using those areas and why? Huge factor that played into some of my decision-making was I was paying attention to humidity levels this year. If we think about, this is my opinion. If we think about, you know, deer thermal regulation, right? You know, staying warm or cold, essentially. Yep. And, and them trying to, you know, maintain the static state that is really critical to their overall health. You know, yep. they're, they're inclined to be uh, aware and physiologically sensible and making decisions based upon their status and health. We, we've already defined that on this podcast. And, and as yeah. lack of scientific information we have, the reality of it is they have to survive. That's part of their DNA. And the next part of it is thinking about how they access and utilize landscape features in concert with weather conditions. So staying out of the, you know, the cold wind or and vice versa, being able to, you know, their olfactory, their smelling sensory system, being able to diagnose what's going on in the landscape. And humidity plays a huge level or a huge role in that, you know, how well yep. they can smell and sense the environment. I think those are actually some of the predominant factors that I'm really starting to pay attention to. Maybe not things that people always pay attention to, but I'm paying attention to that. And I'm noticing right. a much higher movement in certain humidity levels, again, based on barometric pressure, where we are in the weather cycles and systems in concert with temperature change and drop. And I don't, I think that may sound more sophisticated than it is, but start looking at some of these trends. So this is my next yep. question for you, Steve. You got all this data in, I know you're putting in spreadsheets. Can you kind of go through a little bit of your process? Because I think people are kind of like, holy cow, we just got 60 more cards to pull. I mean, I only, I only said I had, you know, 500,000 pitchers. You've got 1.5 million pitchers, you know, for that matter. So kind of, kind of go through that a little bit with us. Well, um, this year was a tad easier too, because I'm only going through daytime activity. So 
if I'm flying through a card and I'm seeing all night pictures, I'm really not taking any data from those. So, uh, I mean, when I'm talking daytime activity, and this is, you know, in, in big woods, it's a lot different too versus, um, you know, not that I have experience hunting private land or, uh, you know, farmland type situations, but we're not, we're also not getting as many pictures, especially daytime pictures as, you know, someone that, you know, we're, we're deer pattern to come into a certain spot every day. Like we don't see it, you know, a lot of that, but then you throw in like a really poor, uh, movement like we had this past season it really hasn't been too bad but what i'm doing is uh i collect all daytime buck pictures um you know at the end of every every season my study goes from october 1st to december 10th and why i'm choosing that time frame is those are during the pennsylvania hunting seasons archery and gun season so i'm really only most concerned on what deer are doing during hunting season because I want to learn, you know, their movements as to when, you know, when I'm hunting them. Um, and uh, also, too, you know, I'm so I, I count like, uh, you know, not so much each picture counts as, as, a, as a frame of movement, but say like if you get five pictures of, of a buck, you know, working a scrape in front of your camera, I will only count that as one sequence. You know, I'm, it doesn't matter uh, to me how many times I have a picture of a particular deer. You know, I'm, I'm looking at like frames of movement or sequences of movement. So that's what I note down. And I mean, I'll just give you a quick example here too. You know, when, when we're talking about a lot of pictures, like I said, I, I do have thousands of night pictures this year, but um, say on the 13th this year, uh, which was my best day. This some people probably think this is crazy too, but I think we're only at about like 17 or 18 daytime pictures out of probably 160 cameras out at that time. So uh, there's some days we only have one daytime picture out of all of those cameras, um, which is I mean it just sounds crazy. But uh, even last year though, our best day was 36 pictures on November 6th, um, and. Uh, you know, this year, I don't know if we'll have any day that, you know, one or uh, where we might have had 30-some daytime buck pictures. One thing, too, I will just bring up, too, is, you know, people talk about certain dates every year. And, I mean, there is some accuracy to that. However, uh, you know, last year our best day was November 6th, 36 pictures. And I'm more than halfway through the collecting data this year on November 6th. This year, I have three daytime pictures. So, don't ever base your, you know, go, you know, from one season to the next, or your plan and hunts like, okay, I gotta hunt that state, or I definitely gotta schedule my vacation November sixth, like, you know, because it's good every year. Generally, it is, and it might there might be places it's consistently good, but if uh, you know you're hunting areas like I hunt. Uh, <laughs> It's I like I keep saying all the time. There's so many other factors that are gonna have an effect on you know being in the right place at the right time, and for the most part, a lot of it's the weather is what I'm seeing. Yeah, no, I agree, and it's it's good to know that you know, and it probably makes some people feel a little better that you know you're not getting you know 150 or 200 daylight pictures of individual yeah. deer, right? You're not dealing with a massive deer population, but what you are doing is you're focused on you know focal areas or focal points where deer 
tend to reside seasonally and then you're diagnosing movement in there and, and that allows you to kind of contract and probably prescribe good camera locations. And that's really kind yep. of how I work and design hunting properties is I work around that same principle. I, I think there's another piece of this is just looking at the data, taking the time to look at the data and like segmenting out, you know, the nighttime versus daytime and disregarding it. Sometimes nighttime images are valuable just in the fact that is a deer present? Sure. Where is he living and how is he moving through a location? And then the next piece of it is, well, if you pick him up on the next camera, he went from area A to area B, and then you're you're starting to diagnose movement or patterns, at least a sequence of events that kind of give you some idea of this cadence of movement, which is, is really critical, particularly if you're in the design mentality and saying, you know, yeah, there might be annual trends like you brought up earlier, like we might see movement on our property a little bit more during this time of year. And you'll see those normally those annual trends very consistently as long as the habitat stays the same, the hunting pressure stays the same, those type of things. But then that gets dysregulated really easily. And now you're focusing on individual deer and their attributes. And let me ask you this question because this is this is where the rubber meets the road. You're getting this data, you're figuring out, you know, time and place, you're telling yourself a story, but are you individualizing these deer so much where you're trying to focus on his preferences and trends. How do you break a deer down from that data? Or maybe you just, you know, he's been in this area consistently. This is how he's used this on a historical basis. You know, yes, the dates and times are going to change because we don't see annual patterns as much in your settings and in my settings because I small, I hunt uh, land with a lot of hunting pressure around it. So that we don't have annual patterns. I, I'm going to sure. say one more thing, Steve. Um, the One yeah. of the issues that I, I hear quite often is, Yep, this deer showed up on the annual pattern. You know, put a dot in the map, you're going to kill him that day. Guys, that is such a rarity in the areas that I hunt and work in. In some properties where the pressure is, I'll say, different or consistent, that absolutely happens very consistently. I work in the Midwest, absolutely. And I'm not saying all Midwest locations, but based on the volume of deer, the consistency of the hunting pressure, et cetera. Where I'm hunting, there's so much hunting pressure around me, period, there are annual patterns and they're not deer old enough to make those annual patterns because they get shot at year and a half or two and a half. So I just want to yeah. make sure that's a point to, to reconcile because I, I hear that quite often and I would never base my hunting season around annual patterns in the areas yeah. where the volume of pressure I have. And I, I know you can relate to that, Steve, but sorry, yeah. I, I had to put that in there because no, I hear I think that all the time. Yeah, that's good. You brought that up. Um, <clears throat> where I see the most consistencies, uh, to bucks kind of doing, you know, the same things year after year is more through that early October to maybe anywhere from the 15th to the 20th. Then they tend to get a little more unpredictable is, uh, you know, they do have, what I do see is they have their rutting areas um, or the rut ranges. And you'll, you'll all of a sudden notice like, man, the three years in a row, this certain buck has showed up in this, this certain area roughly around the same time. But it's also like you may get two or three pictures of that deer throughout the entire rut. I I think a rut range is is way bigger than his like fall core range, you know. So, um, un, unfortunately, uh, <clears throat> you know, for guiding and even most of my hunting is closer during that rut period. I really can't say like there's any deer that we ever feel like we have pegged or. You know, we're going to definitely kill this deer because we're just seeing them like crazy. That Their range, especially in these these bigger woods, tends to 
you know, it, it's very unpredictable because, because you know, it's so expansive. Yeah. Um, I do think though, if you're patient, um, and you know, unfortunately for me and especially even like, uh, with guiding, like, I think it's kind of like, you're probably better off if, if you're just a hunter that had a lot of time and, uh, could focus his season on one particular deer. And, you know, if you, if you did that and you had the right amount of time, I think someone could still have success doing that. But in my situation and the way we do things, like it's very hard for us to completely focus on individual deer. The best success we've had during the rut is uh, studying our doe groups and just kind of using them as bait. Um, you know, I mean, I've probably said it on this podcast before, but, you know, that's, in, in my opinion, that's one of the biggest keys. And that's as, as much as uh, uh, we know bucks are, you know, trying to stay safe and, you know, acting smart. I will say during the rut, uh, the does are, are probably the number one thing on their mind. And if you can pattern your does consistently, um, you're going to stay on bucks and even, you can probably kill individual bucks uh, if you if you hunt those doe groups right because they are going to continue to come back and check them. Or if you get a hot doe, uh, you know I, I think I've seen I've seen certain bucks stay on a doe for two or three days. So um, you know it it can definitely be be something that that you can have success with. But uh, we really overall don't focus on a lot of individual behavior. Yeah, that's fine. And based on your circumstances, that's understandable. And I think for some people, you know, that that's reasonable. They have multiple deer to focus on and, you know, they may be, may be seeing trends of movement, right? And they're, they're looking at that movement. And in this case, you're talking about hunting during the rut. Well, yep. let me, let me, let me lead you into the next issue. You know, I love our vulnerability on this and we're just exposing our failures. And I, I've had a whole host of failures. This year, I, I stepped back and I just looked at my, I said, you know, the target deer that I went after got killed. Okay. I'm going to lay off. I'm just going to hunt. I'm going to observe. I'm going to come up with some plans. I got client stuff to do. I mean, I, yep. I, I could put time into other things, but from the failure standpoint, where did you end up this year? What failures are things that you observed or experienced yourself that, that you would like to share? Yep. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm, I've definitely been observing my failures. Uh, probably my biggest failure was always being behind versus like getting ahead. I, uh, you know, there's certain shifts that happen every year. And I think there was a few more this year that happened, uh, you know, more rapidly and, and maybe not, uh, something that you see, you know, as much every year, like for instance, and I kind of knew this going into the season, but it can change quickly, but we had drought conditions and, uh, what, one thing I noticed was around the end of October when all the green browse uh, dried up, because I, I really think that deer are getting a lot of their water from what they eat. Um, the only place there was any water was way down in the bottoms of the valleys. And, you know, all of a sudden, because we really do focus a lot on higher elevations, um, all of a sudden, you know, everything up high was really slowing down. And uh, a lot of our deer activity and even buck activity was down close to water. And I, I felt like I was four or five days uh, behind on that, especially going into, like I said, maybe around Halloween and that first week in November, you know, we were really struggling um, because also you're, this is where, where you can get fooled is 
a lot of my strategy is based on what I'm seeing on my cameras. Well, through like the week before that, tons of activity, daytime activity, you're like, okay, this is where we got to be. And then literally uh, everything changes in an instant. Uh, and, and not being able to, to understand and see what's going on, uh, basing it on last week's intel and not realizing, geez, you know, all these mountain springs are dried up. These deer are bound to shift at any time. And another thing, too, is up in higher elevations, there was still tons of sign. Uh, those bucks would still go up there at night. It, it kind of changed their, uh, their pattern. Usually it's up high during the day and then down low during the night. But they would actually, I think they were betting more low and then, you know, especially because that's where the does were, and then they would still go up high, work scrapes, make rubs. So you're seeing all this sign, and then you're thinking, well, they're here, they're, you know, the sign's here. But overall, I felt like that was my biggest mistake is um, not reading the situation fast enough. I mean, yeah, I caught on to it, but kind of a week too late. And then, uh, you know, I think some of, the, <clears throat> some of the other mistakes, you know, I made too was, uh, what I found this year was a lot of our mature deer didn't range like as much as what they normally do. Once again, it could have been based on their health. Like, you know, I would get night pictures of a deer, like, you know, middle of the night, but a lot in, you know, a lot of these bucks never ever showed up in some of these places during the daytime. And it just seemed like their daytime movements were so constricted in a, in smaller areas where, you know, I was banking on like any day this deer is going to show up uh, in the daytime. And like I said, when when I talk about night movement this past season, I've never seen this much night movement and this little daytime movement in as long as I've ever been hunting. Like it's just crazy how bad it was. I had uh, cameras even in New York, and you know, because someone might say, "Well, you probably have your cameras and." in areas that aren't close to bedding or, you know, highly pressured with deer nocturnal. Well, I had cameras in New York, remote areas, two miles back in, like never had a daytime picture in remote country of a mature buck, but tons of night pictures. So overall, you know, I just, I just say that I, I feel like I failed on getting ahead and predicting what's going to happen versus waiting until it happened and, always being a little bit behind schedule. I feel like that was my biggest mistake. I love that. I love the openness there. And certainly you've, you've mentioned two things and that's assessing status of your deer, their, their, you know, relative health in concert. And, and there's ways to measure that after the fact, probably a podcast should, should be done on that, looking at kidney fat and a, a few other aspects of, of the deer's health. And then flipping to assessing the vegetation, right. And, and the value of that vegetation on the landscape. And we're talking yep. about food value, valuation, and and that's a piece of it that I think we need to focus in on a, a little bit more, just as as hunters and and those land managers that are trying to diagnose how deer are utilizing the landscape, and recognizing that diversity is really critical and uh, important to kind of assessing you know when they're going to use you know those particular areas and and you know your traditional trends of high to low or low to high. I've had similar observations that we've talked about with my neighbors, you know, in, in some capacity, similar to what you've identified 
is it changes their trend of movement to some degree. Again, that's why these annual patterns to me are, are a bit fruitless when it comes to, you know, how they're using certain areas at certain times. It could be a condition of, you know, there's agricultural's harvest in this one area and therefore, you know, that changed it or you've had drought conditions or maybe there was a cutting done in this area. It just changes the dynamic. And what you want to do on your property, at least from a land management standpoint, is you want consistency. So you have to think of the maintenance and as a result of the maintenance, you know, what's the result and uh, value of, of the, the material resources on the landscape. And that's really critical to kind of yep. being on top of things. And whether in the big woods, you're managing your own property, just thinking about this stuff to me is, is pretty, pretty fruitful. So, yep. And I, and honestly, uh, I, I'm, you know, some people might think that, you know, I'm the most confident hunter, most experienced, or maybe even successful, but like, I feel like I've, I learned more from failure this season than I was able to use like my own knowledge and success. I feel it was more of a learning season for me than, uh, than just a successful one. I mean, yeah, I did, I did kill a decent buck, but, uh, I, I really thought there was more times I was failing than, uh, than having success, but I actually don't mind that at all. I'm not a, uh, you know, I don't have, I'm not a very prideful person. Like I love the learning process and I feel like a season like I just had, um, uh, where I feel that, you know, I made more mistakes than, than positive, uh, you know, uh, positive planning, I guess. But, uh, I, I feel like this is a good thing too, because you, you learn so much more, I think, uh, on your mistakes and your failures. Sometimes, you'll have success doing just one thing and, uh, you think, wow, I got it all figured out. But you know, when 10 different things didn't work for you, you can cross them off the list and then you can go back and evaluate. And I just think it's more beneficial to be honest. Yeah, I agree. And I'm happy that, that you took that mindset and applied it to, you know, your situation. And then I think in the future you're, you're building that bag of tricks and thinking about things more dimensionally so you can assess things maybe a little different sooner so you can be more successful. And I think that's the trend that we're all trying to promote here is uh, yep. utilizing, you know, kind of that, those bits of information. Hey, I want to ask you offhand something we didn't talk about uh, pre-show yeah. or anything like that. I know Bo Martonic's having a scout thing. Um, what's the deal with that? I, I'm not trying to promote it for, for this podcast or anything or his, I, I don't, are, are you involved in any of that stuff, Steve? Um, no, I'm not. I actually am going to be having one myself too, which would be very similar. I don't know exactly what he's going over, but, uh, you know, it's going to be big woods, mountain bucks, uh, you know, probably an all around like, uh, you know, buck bedding, you know, basically if you wanted to put it into a few words, maybe everything you need to know about mountain buck hunting. Um, and I'm going to be having one too, uh, sometime in April. Um, and I'm not, I mean, Bo and I are good friends. I'm not trying to compete with him. No, or, no, no. And I can only have, I can only take like eight guys for this or, you know, eight hunters. Women would be welcome to. And I don't think he can take a whole lot on either, but, uh, it's just really good. Like hands on, um, you know, learning experience. You can, you know, I think, you know, I wouldn't be doing these podcasts if I didn't think they were beneficial to anyone, but there's really a whole different, uh, learning environment when you can, to, you know, take someone to certain spots and really show them hands-on. I think it's an even better experience and easier to pick up on things when you can see it with your own eyes. So uh, yeah. I think that's why they're 
they're you know very beneficial and popular to you know a lot of hunters are attracted to doing that so uh if uh i think it's something that anyone would want to consider doing right right can you release what the dates are and all that stuff i know you got a short window here and and you've got limited capacity but when, when is when is it um, I don't know when bows are. Um, yours specifically. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm yours. Oh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have mine the third weekend in April. Okay. Um, I just had to, I haven't announced it because there's a couple things that I have to make sure that aren't going to happen. But mine's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to have meals and lodging included. Uh, it's going to be at my neighbor's cabin, which is pretty much uh, within sight of my house. So, uh I think it'll be a fun time. I'm only going to be able to take like eight people though, uh, just because, you know, I don't want to overcrowd the place or whatever, but, uh, it's going to be a good experience and, uh, I'm sure I'm pretty confident we'll, uh, we'll fill up. I, I think it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a two day thing, two night, you know, all meals included. It's going to be like 500 a person, but there's overall you're, it's, you're going to get your money's worth. Out oh of goodness. That's nothing. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Whoever gets to go on that, you know, have fun. And, uh, yep. you know, we'll, we'll get to probably talk a little bit more about, you know, what the plan and agenda for that is on this podcast. And, uh, sure. I'm not going to announce anything for me, but not this year. I've got too many projects. I'm actually working Saturdays and Sundays. I don't know if I've told you that. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, but just because again, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm being honest with everybody, just picking up more clients. I, I, I'm, it's hard yep. for me. I, I don't have an intern or somebody working for me. And so, you know, Josh and I are, he's, we've got a turnkey job we're working on today and I'm, I'm walking them through as I'm working on projects. We are doing this podcast, you know, okay, I would cut here a little bit harder, you know, and I've walked this property multiple times. I mean, it just, you're Johnny in the spot everywhere. You know how that is when you're running a business. Oh, absolutely. So, yep. No, I can quickly, I can just relate to that with guiding, like, uh, being a guide, I mean, I couldn't ask for, uh, you know, a better situation. Uh, but it really does cut into your hunting time. People think if you're in the hunting industry, like you're going to get to hunt, you know, more than ever, but it, it could actually backfire. And then there's times it does like your, yeah, your hands are in hunting, but when it comes to anything of your own personal, uh, needs and experiences it it really has an influence on i feel like every year i get my quality hunting goes down and down so i know where you're coming from yeah and you know i'm i'm at the point and i think josh and and you're at the point where you know i'm not worried about putting a buck on the wall at this point i'm I'm worried about helping other people and that's more of my that's the focus of my business um and i'm 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 learning but i need to continue to learn right so even taking time off to hunt and trying to be like I've told you before, it's all about maximizing my time, period. Maximize your hunt, maximize your time. This is this is kind of my mantra, and I feel like that dogma is like, you know, I, I know next year the deer I'm going after. The reason I'm not doing a, a field day on my property this year is I'm cutting benches in. I'm expanding the food plot. I'm cutting more timber on it. I've got stuff I need to get done this year. I'm putting... I'm trying to segregate areas on hillsides a little bit differently than I've done in the past. So I've got some, some work to in place and like to get it, in my opinion, optimized. And it was funny. I do this professionally, right? I walk hunting properties. I make recommendations. Well, I get on my property and I get all sorts of like screwed up. Like, well, the deer are doing this. Yep. This is working. But you know, I'm looking for perfection and Josh and I walked my property the other day 
And he's like, he looks at me, he goes, man, this needs a lot of work. And, it, you know, I mean, you know, we, we sat there and we're talking to each other like, okay, you know, we got to, we got to put in this bench system. You know, why do we plant these trees here that, you know, we got to focus the deer in this area. Okay. We're going to, we're going to totally negate this area where we're trying to, I mean, there's so many little elements and we're thinking about how are deer ut- utilizing the landscape and what isn't working. And uh, again, I got a North facing slope. I got uh, my property is by far the hardest property I've ever had to design. I bought it for that intended purpose. <laughs> and the net result is I'm trying to tweak it to like, okay, can I make it better? Can I do something a little bit more? You know, how can I change it? How can I create interest in this area? And you're constantly making these tweaks and changes. So I bought a problem child to have more problems apparently. And then, <laughs> and, and that's just, you know, that's just the, the bastardness of what I'm kind of dealing with at this point. So I don't know, you know, it's intriguing. It's fun. I, I love the difficulty and challenge and, you know, that's the beauty sure. of hunting in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, low deer populations allow for you to do a lot in the landscape, in my opinion. And, you know, when I yeah. go out to the Midwest and I get, you know, I get clients out there, I'm, I'm just so fortunate because it's such a, a great opportunity to, to learn more and to get those guys, you know, to the next level, especially with the age class of deer that a lot of my clients are dealing with. And, you know, some of them have an opportunity to kill booners and, you know, I would love yep. to be in that situation, but, but, uh, I enjoy, uh, sunny Syracuse, New York. So. Nope. I, uh, I get invited to hunt places all over the country or a lot of <laughs> people want to trade hunts, but I'm, I'm stuck in my roots. I, uh, yeah. I, I just love where I'm at. Yeah. And I respect that man. And, and you've done such a great job. You had some great client kills this year too. So, you know, it's nice to see that success continue for you and, and, uh, your humbleness and your, just your learning and, and everything. Let's end there, man. We're past our half an hour. I appreciate appreciate you, Steve. Appreciate you contributing and uh, appreciate you sharing today. Well, absolutely. And uh, you know, like I said, I know uh, I know I feel like we could have probably talked for two or three more hours. So I'll expect to to get on here another you know probably half dozen times with you or more this year. And uh, yeah. looking always looking forward to the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And we got some cool podcasts coming up with some new guys. So I'm, I'm pumped for all that. So, all right. Well, thanks Great. for following me and Steve and uh, more from Steve soon. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.